Welcome to the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles, which is a product of politics in motion. Today I want to investigate a, a very difficult and thorny problem, uh, not only for Marxists, but for everyone, which is how to understand the concept of nation and the role of nationalism and what nationalism might do to our thinking when it is inserted into the theoretical discussion of how capital works. This uh, is a matter of putting the word nation in front of the word state. We've talked a lot about state and state politics and state uh, interventions, and we've had, a, I hope, a, a decent idea as to what some of that might mean. But what happens to it all when instead of talking about the state, we talk about the nation state, which assumes that the state has a rather different character from simply the bourgeois state. And there's therefore this question of the nation that I want to investigate and interrogate a little bit. I'm not quite sure, actually, how I'm going to interpret it because at this point in time, I'm still a little confused as to exactly what uh, the argument might be about. For example, Marx dealt with that question in the Communist Manifesto by saying, basically, the nation didn't matter when it came to thinking about terms of class. Uh, as he said, the workers have no country and that therefore uh, they are going to wage class struggle and class struggle is something which is uh, rather different from uh, the national question. Uh, later on in the century, uh, we find a big argument going on as to how to understand the idea of a nation and, and the rights of self-determination and, and of populations. Uh, these, these discussions uh, involved uh, people like, uh, for example, Stalin was one who, in 1915, wrote one of the original treatises on the role of the nation-state uh, in, in politics. Uh, Rosa Luxemburg wrote a great deal, Lenin wrote a great deal, and there's been a continuous debate within Marxist circles as how best to understand the state. And what I want to do is to sort of try to do a relationship between talking about how and why the, the nation-state comes about and how, what its origins might be, and then also talk a little bit about uh, what the consequences might be. And just to give you a sense of this, I'll give you a quotation that came, comes from, uh, of all people, Woodrow Wilson. Uh, President of the United States at uh, Versailles, uh, somebody who I've uh, already mentioned. And what Woodrow Wilson said was this. He said, since trade uh, ignores national boundaries and the manufacturer insists, is, insists 
on having the world as a market. The flag of his nation must follow him, and the doors of the nations which are closed against him must be battered down. Concessions obtained by financiers must be safeguarded by ministers of state, even if the sovereignty of unwilling nations be outraged in the process. Colonies must be obtained or planted in order that no useful corner of the world may be overlooked or left unused. So this was President of the United States talking in the early 1920s about his thinking of how relations between nations are connected together by the fact that uh, every capitalist wants a market, everybody is going to spread the market exchange all around the world, and that therefore uh, that market process has to be protected by a nation state intervening in relationships to other nation states and battering down the walls between them. Now, in asking the question of this sort, uh, we need, it seems to me, some very foundational concepts and some foundational arguments. Uh, these don't exist in the Marxist literature, and I have to go outside the Marxist literature to another domain for a moment in order to talk about something which, for me, has always been historically very important, uh, given my professional association as a geographer. In geography, we often talk about the three basic concepts uh, with which the discipline as a whole is concerned. And those three basic concepts are first, the question of the environment, and we generally distinguish between the environment which is untouched by human modifications, so we might call it, if you like, raw nature, and then the environment as it is modified through human action. But therefore, the environment is one of the questions that we look at, and we therefore want to look at the relationship between capital circulation and the environment both what capital absorbs from the environment and what capital does to the environment in terms of building cities and building new environments uh, to which we then have to adapt. The second concept is that of space and space-time. And, and in this, too, I've also often sort of pointed out that capital itself is very much concerned with the production of space and the production of new temporalities. Uh, capital is about speed-up. Things accelerate move much faster. There is, as Marx says, a certain annihilation of space through time. There is a very dynamic place, therefore, for looking at the way in which spatiotemporality is transformed. But once that spatiotemporality uh, is transformed, we have to adapt to it. And capital is constantly transforming uh, the, tr the space-time coordinates of its actions uh, and at the same time reshaping those coordinates through its, through its actions. So environment and space-time. The final uh, concept we use a great deal is the concept of, of place. Now, place uh, is not, if you like, a, a favorite uh, concept uh, amongst Marxists, but capital makes places. Capital is born on places, and capital actually has a certain importance in terms of who we are and what we, what we think about. Now, Marx was a, a great admirer of Aristotle. He was a classical scholar. And Aristotle had some interesting things to say. One of the first things he, Marx quotes, quotes him as saying is, saying, is is pointing out that human beings are, as he calls it, political beings. 
political beings, social beings. They're political and actually, uh, in the language of capital, uh, Marx it gets translated as we are political animals. That therefore, we are always about forming collectives of some kind, and those collectives and collective forms of action uh, are sometimes uh, very extensive and, and very, very major. And what that means is that, uh, uh, as Aristotle would have it, uh, if we are political animals, we therefore have to think of the way in which capital is itself politicized and socialized in terms of its forms of, uh, of circulation. The second thing that uh, uh, you want me to stop? No, you continue. Well, let me know the right. No, the thing is that you were watching, you were looking over here. Yeah. I was trying to catch your attention. To, ah, okay. To call the camera because uh -huh. it looks very weird. Okay. Okay. Oh, sorry. All right. So, so the second, so the second thing that uh, Aristotle uh, had to say, which I think was uh, very significant, was that uh, when Aristotle started to talk about uh, the meaning of, of market exchange and started to analyze the nature of the market, what Aristotle noticed, and I think is something that we always uh, will, when teaching Marx, emphasize is that market exchange uh, rests on the idea of an equivalent and rests on the, the idea of equality. So that political definition of equality and equivalence becomes absolutely fundamental to any society based on commodity exchange. What Marx then goes on to say is that unfortunately uh, Aristotle could not come up with a labor theory of value uh, because the kind of labor that went on in Greek society in his time was basically uh, slave labor. And if you have slave labor, one of the preconditions for the formation of Marx's value theory is the existence of wage labor. And therefore, Aristotle could not come up with a theory of value. So that's one of the other things that Aristotle pointed out. But then there's something that Marx did not take up from Aristotle, but which was foundational uh, for how uh, Aristotle thought. And this was the saying that place is the priority of all things, is the primary feature of all things, and that the concept of place is very foundational uh, for Aristotle. Now, it's taken me a lot of time to think about that and saying, okay, if geography is about place, space, and environment, uh, should we look at those things separately or should we look at them as somehow or other a totality. And given the way I like to think, uh, I always think back to the totality. And the totality would be as a particular place, of course, is exists in a certain spatio-temporal field and has certain environmental qualities, both natural and humanly constructed, and that therefore the production of place is just as important as the production of, of of, of space and space-time and, and the, the production of environmental transformations. So that, if you like, the field of geography is about the relations between place, space and environment. Now, if that is the case, then we have to start to analyse the, the, the spatial moment uh, and the, 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 the environmental moment and then the place moment. And what I'm going to do, since I have in a previous uh, uh, sessions sort of talked about uh, the environment and talked about uh, spatio-temporality. So I want to concentrate on uh, the notion of place for the moment. 
What I think Aristotle means by this is that all of us have a place of our origin. And that place of our origin, where we are born, how we are immediately raised, it plays a defining role in who we are. And that therefore, rather than kind of starting off with the abstractions of space-time and the abstractions of, of environment, uh, even human-made, we start with the, with the, the concreteness of, the, of the, the fact that we were born into a particular place and we, and we have therefore a certain set of experiences which shape us for, for much of our lives. So when we, when we say that place is the first of all things, that is where we begin upon our search to understand the world. And I think that that search which we, we we're engaged upon, and to some degree that is what we're concerned with here, that search is, is something uh, which is going to redefine not only who we are particularly, but how the world around us is, is, is made, and what it's made of, and how those transformations then come back to, to transform us further. In other words, taking a dialectical view, which we, change, in which we say we change the world in order to change ourselves, then one of the ways in which we change the world is by building different places, and therefore, concept of place starts to become foundational. And I want to argue that reflections on the nature of what place is about and how place works and all of the environmental questions which are attached to it and the cultural questions which are attached to it, when we start to think of those things we start to say something there's something very distinctive here. That I am a distinctive person by virtue of the kinds of place that I came from. Now there's a very interesting thing here that you could probably in the United States look at what uh, postal zone people came from, what, what, what zone people came from, and, and have a pretty good idea of what kind of person they are. Uh, I used to notice this when traveling around Europe. I'd see American students encountering each other, and one of the first questions they always asked each other was, where are you from? Where are you from? And if somebody said, well, I'm from Texas, and another said, I'm from Alabama, and another said, I'm from Oregon, and so on, conveyed a lot of information to people. So where you're from is very significant and it is therefore enters into the personality and the understandings of the world which we gain from our upbringing and all the rest of it. So when Aristotle says that place is the first of all things, it's where we, 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 we begin. And how we then experience that uh, is, very, is very critical. Now, I'm going to give a, a side example of this. Very, uh, which is politically relevant to the current situation. Uh, I saw a movie the other night, or a documentary the other night, which was called Born in Gaza. And the last time that Gaza was uh, invaded and attacked and so on, some eight years ago, uh, it affected, uh, 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 of course, a lot of, a lot of people. And what the film did was essentially, at that time, talk to young kids, to eight, ten-year-old kids, and try to sort of get from them what their experience of the world had been in this fight which had gone on between Israel and Hamas. And the kids told heart-rending stories. Uh, a kid would say something like, well, you know, I went down to see my grandmother because my mother sent me on a message, and by the time I came back, my whole family had been killed, and the, my, my, my 
dwelling dis destroyed. And you, you would hear things like that coming from them. And then many of them saying, I don't understand why this is happening. What is happening? How is it happening? And, and, and what does it mean? And, 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 and why are those people doing this to us? So in a way, it was the actual documentation of what war looks like uh, from the standpoint of an eight or 10 year old in Gaza uh, eight or 10 years ago. And it then struck me the fact that these kids who survived that particular event are the kids who probably form the backbone of Hamas today. And you can understand where their thinking comes from and where their understandings come from because of the kind of environmental conditions under which they were raised and the kind of questions which they all automatically asked. Why are we being bombed this way? We didn't do anything. We were just getting on with our lives and then suddenly all of this thing starts to happen. And they, incomprehension. Uh, and at the same time, uh, a, a bitterness and an anger uh, towards the destructiveness that they had experienced. And it could occur to me very much that if you find generations of people who have gone through this, then those generations start to form the cadre for a different kind of political world later on. So when we say that place is the first of all things, we're saying the very fact of being born in Gaza uh, in, in that time uh, is likely to end up with you joining some sort of uh, political movement, and uh, the political animal starts to come out, and the political animal comes together forming something like, like Hamas. So this is, this, is, this is something then that I think we should be taking care of. And we should therefore take very carefully into account the kinds of placemaking and the kinds of things that go on in places, because that is, if you like, the shaping of future generations, and, and, and therefore is the foundation upon which many, many things happen. Now, this is a, a kind of a, 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 an interesting starting point, but there's a problem with this starting point. Because when Aristotle said that place is the first of all things, what he's doing is actually then stating something which is really, I think, very, uh, very sig significant, but which is taken up in other things. In other words, the notion of place played a very important role uh, in a lot of philosophical thinking. And I have here uh, a, a, a piece of argument because one of the people who made this argument uh, about place, which is a very close to Aristotle, is the, is the German philosopher Heidegger. And this makes it very, very, very problematic for the simple reason that, as many people have pointed out, Heidegger uh, was actually not, not was quite tolerant of uh, Nazism, associated himself philosophically with Nazi uh, thinking. Uh, even after the end of World War II, uh, he still kept on sort of uh, never disavowing uh, the Nazi experience. So Heidegger is a very problematic figure that you wouldn't want me and you, probably you to, to listen to. But when you go and read Heidegger, you find that he's got a very distinctive notion of place. So he says, place is the locale of the truth of being. Look, let me read that again. Place is the locale of the truth of being. Now, this is very close to Aristotle, but it's actually deeper than Aristotle because he's kind of saying there's a certain truth uh, that attaches uh, to the notion of place 
And that truth is essential to our being, or as Marx would have preferred it probably, our becoming. And when you kind of start to interrogate a little bit further where Heidegger is coming from, you find some actually quite uh, stunning uh, passages which are deeply anti-capitalist in, in their import. Uh, and uh, this is something that he says. Now, if I didn't say, tell you this was Heidegger, you could imagine that this might actually come from the pen of Marx. And it goes like this. All distances in time and space are shrinking. All right. Annihilation of space through time. Yes, the frantic abolition of all distances belongs, uh, brings no nearness. The nearness does not consist in, a hard time reading this, in, in, in shortness of distance. What is least remote from us in point of distance, by virtue of its uh, being on film or in sound or on radio, can remain far from us. What is, in, what is incalculable from us in point of distance can be near to me. Everything gets lumped together into uniform distancelessness. What is it? then un un unsettles and thus terrifies. It shows itself and hides itself in the way in which everything presences, that is, comes to our recognition, namely in the fact that despite all conquest of distances, the nearness of things remains absent. Now, this is kind of a very interesting notion about space and time. There is that logical space and time that we've often had reasons to talk about, the absolute space and time of Newton. But here there's something different. That the distanceness depends on how we appropriate it. Can we appropriate something that is close to us and can it be ours or is something that is actually physically close to us in unapproachable? And Heidegger was a great enemy of cosmopolitanism. It was a great uh, enemy uh, of the spread of market exchange and market relations and started to think of them as destructive. He was, in this sense, uh, deeply anti-capitalist in a way. And as he says, the object character of technological dominion spreads itself over the earth even more quickly, ruthlessly and completely. Not only does it establish all things as producible in the process of production, it also delivers the products uh, of, of this, uh, 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 the products of production by means of the market. In self-assertive production, the humanity of man and the thingness of things dissolve into the calculated market value of a market which not only spans the whole earth as a world market, but also as the will to will trades in the nature of being, and thus subjects all beings to the trade of a calculus that dominates most consciously in those areas where there is no need of numbers. Now what Heidegger is doing here is really sort of making a very really 
ultimate critique, and it, where I kind of say this is very, very Marxist in its own way. Uh, you could imagine Marx promoting similar sentences, uh, similar ways of thinking in the economic and philosophic manuscripts way, way back. And the point that I want to make here is that, of course, Heidegger, therefore, is a very conservative figure. And to the degree that the theory of place has been dominated by Heideggerian thinking, so that Heidegger thinks about questions of dwelling, talks about you know, how we appropriate the world around us, how we work with the things around us, and does it in such a way uh, as to take, uh, uh, appropriate the world uh, to the self in such a way uh, that uh, we start to internalize uh, much of what we find in the place we are in. Now, this is the kind of work which is these days coming back into uh, left thinking, particularly with the idea of more and more uh, uh, better un and better understanding of indig indigenous cultures and indigenous places, indigenous thinking, indigenous feeling. And there is the sense of feeling, the, 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 the sensitivity uh, to environmental variation, the, the closeness of things which we can appropriate, how we understand them at the same time as those things can be very distant you know, in, in mere physicality. So the idea of place then is foundational for how we think about how people dwell. And this is one of, of Heidegger's main concepts, dwelling. How we dwell is therefore a critical feature for him. And we can be alienated from, labor, from nature. We can be alienated from uh, the space-time of, of events. We can be alienated from each other. And while Heidegger does not use that term of alienation, Marx certainly would, would understand the, the general alienation that comes from commercial culture, from market exchange, and from capital accumulation. And that therefore what Marx would actually appeal, would uh, agree with Heidegger about, would be to say that th this world which, we, which is being built by capital is a world full of alienation. And, and, and part of that alienation is uh, going to be uh, set up by an attempt to recuperate uh, the realness and the, and, and, and the sensitivity that comes from dwelling. And, and what Heidegger does is to kind of say, you know, there are certain places which are, uh, if you like, sacrosanct, places of memories, places of, of, uh, of encounters, places. And this is something that actually, interestingly, is taken up on the left by Lefebvre. Lefebvre actually uh, studied Heidegger very carefully, and this was before Heidegger be really became uh, well-known for his Nazi sympathies. Uh, but, but Lefebvre kind of recognized the, the significance of what Heidegger was saying, uh, changed his idea from dwelling into habiting. And so what Lefebvre does is to kind of say, we are who we are by virtue of the kinds of places we inhabit. And inhabiting something is not about just sort of planting yourself on top of things. It's about trying to wrestle with the, the, the reality of uh, the environmental conditions, the space-time relations, and all the rest of it, wrestling with those and trying to incorporate them in a, in a collective sense of self. And it is that collective sense of self which at, the some, at some point gives rise to the concept of nation and nationhood. What is a nation? 
and how a nation works. And a nation, so that, so that the idea of nation starts to become, as it were, something which is, which is uh, about the, the cultural belonging, about, about integration of, of, of one's self well, with the environment, the, 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 the recuperation <coughs> of relations uh, with other people and, and, and the formation of a, of a, of a culture of, of some kind, which is a common culture and a common form of agreement. Now, the result of this is that there's a kind of form of environmentalism this is probably going to upset a number of people when I say this. There's a form of environmentalism that turns out to be very, very close to what Nazism was about. Uh, and actually, if you go back and you see things like uh, the, the, uh, the Nazi youth going into the forest and playing games and doing things and all that kind of thing, uh, this is a very, uh, a, a, a very kind of ecological thing. And, and there are some writings uh, that I've encountered which actually depict Nazi Germany as one of the first uh, ecological states in the sense that there was a very, very close uh, uh, assemblage between, uh, between a, 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 a sort of a sensitive relationship to the natural world and uh, the, the, the submission of oneself uh, to the conditions of life in, in, in that world. And this is something which is kind of really rather bothersome. And it explains something which to me was rather significant about Marx. Marx was, of course, well, well understood that there were nations around and that uh, they needed to be uh, talked about and discussed. And he actually took up the whole kind of idea of uh, national self-determination and was particularly concerned with the case of Poland and, and agitated it uh, on, the, with, on, on, on the case of Poland by sort of saying that uh, Polish independence from Tsarist uh, rule and all the rest of it was absolutely critical and that uh, the right of uh, a population to self-determination, uh, was, uh, which was a very bourgeois demand, was very significant, and, and, and Marx supported it. On the other hand, he didn't support uh, what was going on in Czechoslovakia. Uh, so you kind of go, well, what's the difference between Poland and Czechoslovakia? And I think the difference, as Marx saw it, was this, that in the Polish case, what he saw was a struggle to liberate Poland from the Tsarist chains and from all of the forms of domination that existed around, so that there was a national liberation movement which was doing that, and that that would be the first step towards the creation of a, a different kind of world, and it might be the first step towards the creation of socialism. So that the, the, the Marx saw a certain socialist content. As a, now, in the Czech place, it seemed like what the Czech thing was about was the ruling class trying to take, back, trying to take Czechoslovakia back into the throes of serfdom. And therefore, it was non-progressive. So in other words, uh, a struggle for national self-determination in Poland was progressive in the sense that it was trying to come up with something which was, would allow for the transition to, uh, to socialism, whereas uh, in the Czech case, uh, it was likely to go back into, into serfdom, so so say we wouldn't go for that. Now, this is the sort of judgment which I think is, is therefore characteristic of the, of the Marxist approach 
uh, to the national question. And I found myself engaging in it in a certain kind of way by two recent events, which I think are, are, are significant in this regard. When the movement occurred for uh, Brexit, that is taking Britain out of the European Union, uh, there was a great deal of uh, humming and hawing as to exactly why this would be the case. And I could well understand there was a great deal of impatience in Britain with uh, uh, the, 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 what was going on in, in, in uh, Brussels and the kinds of regulatory schemas that were coming out. And I, when I was looking at it, I was thinking, you know, well, what is the European Union? Is the European Union a progressive organization or is it a reactionary organization? Well, for a while in the early stages of the European Union, you could say it was, uh, you know, there were some progressive elements within it, uh, some significant progressive elements within it, uh, which I think were, were worth uh, supporting. Uh, but uh, after Jacques Delors, who was the uh, socialist uh, prime minister of France at some point, or minister of finance in, in France, uh, left, after that it became increasingly a sort of neoliberal corporatist enterprise. And I can quite well see that uh, the British uh, could, could well get out of that and, and actually do something progressive. But when you looked at the people who, who were really behind the Brexit movement in Britain, they were very reactionary right-wingers. So uh, it, was it was Nigel Farage and the sort of, uh, uh, the sort of British separatists and so on, and, and, and anti-immigrant uh, forces and so on, and it became an anti-immigrant, anti-regulatory uh, kind of stuff, so that uh, after a while it became clear to me that what Brexit would do was to instantiate a very reactionary movement in Britain and that therefore I was not going to support uh, the Brexit movement and would not support because of, of, of where it seemed it was going. Now a parallel case with this, however, was the, the, the Scottish demand for independence. There had been a movement for Scottish independence for some considerable time. It was relatively small, but it began to become very you know, significant at a certain point, particularly around the time of Brexit. And so the kind of question of Scottish independence comes up, and you then ask all of those questions again. You know, what are they going to do with that independence? Why were they going independence? Well, their main argument was uh, they'd had neoliberal uh, governments in uh, in, in London, uh, the neoliberal governance had been uh, robbing the, uh, the North Sea oil from the Scottish control and so on and so on, and that uh, they wanted independence so they could utilize their own resources and, and create a far more progressive kind of welfare state and progressive organization. So in that, that case, uh, the Scottish independence movement uh, which, by the way, uh, also set up something which I, which I, which I like very much. It didn't say uh, you're a Scot by uh, bloodline, that is, you had to prove that somehow or other you had a Scottish heritage. No, as far as they were concerned, it was anybody who lived in Scotland, was in a, no matter whether they were Scottish or considered themselves Scottish or not, got a vote in terms of uh, independence and that therefore it was not about uh, the support of a, a kind of a, a, a particular bloodline and so on, which would be a Heideggerian thing to do. 
So uh, there were many progressive aspects of the Scottish uh, referendum, and so I felt uh, very happy supporting it. And I think this is the sort of dilemmas that most of us get into. You can't say that national identity is a good thing or a bad thing. It depends what people are using it for. And, and in, in the Scottish case, they were using it in, in, in positive kinds of ways. And in, in, the other, in, the, in the Brexit case, they were using it in, in highly negative ways. And I, and, but here, I think, is, uh, if you like, uh, the difficulty. <clears throat> and the difficulty is, yeah, I, I, those are political judgments, and, and, and it's arbitrary, and in a particular situation, you may toss up and say, well, I, I don't know, I um, could go this way or could, I could go that way. But there's no real foundation for this, except in terms of a better understanding of how places form and what places are about, and how, therefore, the theory of place is going to be absolutely crucial, but the theory of place cannot be divorced from its context in space-time and its context in terms of environmental conditions. So we arrive then at, at a point where we start to kind of recognize that, uh, that there is a certain power in, in, in placemaking and how places are made uh, has a big impact on the way in which people in those places behave, how those people work, how they take leisure, their cultural forms, and of course their language and, and, and all the rest of it. These things are, are, are significant and that therefore we should pay attention very much to the fact that the world is made up of places and if you talk about space-time you're talking about it in abstraction but it makes much more sense when you talk about space-time in relationship to particular places. That is, what is the space-time coordinates which lead uh, Lisbon to be like Lisbon, Barcelona to be like Barcelona and so on. So what, what kind of places are we looking at and how much the politics of those places really matters. And then we get to this question, like the Scottish referendum and so on, because many movements actually use the notion of loyalty to place as a, 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 a political uh, a, a political lever, if you like, uh, to, to engage in certain kinds of, of action. So if you look at something like the Paris Commune, uh, you look at the kinds of surveys that were made of the kind of people who got into the commune and the kinds of things they, they, they said. And many of them said they were just loyal to Paris. Uh, the painter Courbet was, was uh, uh, put on trial for support of the commune and was asked, well, why are you doing this? And he kind of said, well, you know, uh, I, 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 love, I love Paris. And, and loving Paris was a very significant feature of political organization. And this then leads to something I, which I think uh, needs to be dwelt upon. Like, what is going on in terms of class struggle and what is going on in terms of national struggle? In other words, can we start to distinguish between national interrogations, between national interests, and can we distinguish those from class interests? And what's the relationship between class uh, and nation? And in what sense is class interest and national interest related to each other? And what is the national interest about? And how does the national interest work? And that will be a topic for another time. So thank you.